This episode is brought to you by the Pan Lagos Foundation. Pan Lagos is based in New York City, and they are a nonprofit cultural organization founded on the ideals of Hellenism, dedicated to the betterment of humanity by supporting intercultural dialogue and exchange through the Hellenic language, education, and ideals, providing opportunities for the pursuit of excellence to individuals of all ages and backgrounds, bringing the wisdom of the past in dialogue with the present. We aim to inspire a happier, healthier humanity for today and the future. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life, and it is about purpose. When you look at your own life and look at the people who have been in it, some of them have been impacted by cancer. Maybe you were. Our guest today, Dr. Onik, is one of the world's leading experts on cancer. We're going to bring him on momentarily, then he's going to tell us his story and what he's working on. But before we begin, the information we're going to go over and even the opinions you're going to hear, is not medical advice and should not be taken as medical advice. Please contact your family doctor or healthcare provider if you have any personal medical questions. This is not intended to replace your consultation with your qualified physician or any other healthcare provider. Dr. Gary, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. You know, it's interesting to the audience out there, there will be people that automatically assume that this won't be for them, that they're not at this stage in their life to hear from the specialty that you are the expert in. But I'm asking people going into this journey with you and I to talk about how their lives are impacted and affected by things that they believe in and the things that they want to change. So Dr. Gary, tell us what you do. Well, I have, uh, over the last 30 years, been working on developing uh, new cancer treatments. Uh, back when I was a young kid, uh, just out of residency, or still in residency, in radiology residency, I had an idea to uh, treat cancers that couldn't be treated any other way. If you couldn't do chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, um uh, and particularly surgery, if, if tumors can't be cut out, uh, in general, particularly back then, they were incurable. So uh, what I did was had this idea to, instead of trying to cut it out, to put a probe into it, destroy it using imaging to get there. And that was the start of, of my journey. Uh, it vaulted me into an echelon of recognition and cancer um, hierarchy that a young guy usually doesn't get um, put into, which was one of the challenges that we had to face. And so talk about that. I mean, most people will go into, I think we looked up, there's 24 specialties that you chose a specialty that is a reminder of death one that will hurt the body, one that will change you and everything around you. What was it about this subspecialty even that made you go all in? Uh, 
the when you develop a relationship with someone on a personal level and you're in that fight with them and you make a difference in their lives that uh, no one else can make because I do experimental things. I develop my own techniques, my own treatments. And so over my career, I've had an impact on some people that no one else really in the world uh, could have had. Those are people that I'm still friends with after 35 years. And so uh, it, it's that really personal connection that gets you um, hooked into this um, really like a big fish being landed on a boat. <laughs> but when did it begin? I mean, looking at this connection aspect, the empathy, I mean, going all the way back, what was your first job? I mean, I have to imagine your first job wasn't as a doctor, right? No, no. My first job was uh, basically at Nathan's uh, in Brooklyn, um, frying potatoes, basically, <laughs> and, and selling them. So, uh, you know, I, I, I always had empathy when I was growing up. My mom was so proud of me uh, one day when I, I was at, um, I was walking by the uh, Bell Parkway down in Brooklyn, and I found an old guy in a, in a Johnny uh, standing by the side of the road, and I took him home. And my mom opened the door, and, and there I was. And, and she said, you know, I, I was just so proud of you. So many people would have just walked by, and, and you didn't. And so, you know, I was the guy that cried at, you know, King Kong when he died. I mean, Are you uh, watching me, by the way? Feeling. How did you know that's exactly what I go through? That I feel this, I get this secondhand embarrassment even, like when they're making fun of somebody on a TV show. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're wiping tears and you're trying to hide it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I'm not the only one, Dr. G. I thought I was the only strange person out there. Yeah. Yep. No, there are, there are lots of us. We just don't like to admit it. <laughs> so that's amazing. So you're not just a renowned expert on cancer, but it sounds to me that you're also somebody that wants to get to know the person that you do feel yourself, that you know that morbidity and mortality will there for certain. You know that you don't save lives. You merely extend them. So talking about your specialty, you know, what ages should we start to check or what ages should we start to stop looking for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think one of the uh, real mistakes that we made uh, in the field of urology, prostate cancer, was to say, you know what, don't check your PSA because it's not a specific test and, and we're going to find cancers that we shouldn't be treating. Uh, and what we're finding now is a lot of patients who took that advice are getting um, more advanced cancers. I being one of them, I took the advice and I found myself with metastatic incurable prostate cancer because of that advice. So uh, and, and what I did with that is, is part of my story. But uh, so, you know, I would say that uh, if you have certain family tendencies um, toward a, a cancer, certainly if in prostate cancer, if you have 
a family member uh, who's had prostate cancer, uh, you should be checked uh, in a very, very aggressive way. So talk about that aspect. I mean, being a doctor and now while you don't speak for all doctors around the world, then many doctors are afraid. They're afraid to to speak up. They're afraid to disagree with what people think or know today. I mean, you have become, in my opinion, a bit of a disruptor or at least somebody that says there can be a better way than what we're doing. And one of the questions I got asked for you was prostate biopsies. I mean, they were known to cause some problems are there any other techniques that are available? Uh, yes. And uh, there, there's nothing that ultimately replaces a biopsy because you have to have the tissue. You can't know exactly what's going on there. But, uh, for instance, we developed a biopsy um, that happened uh, you know, about 10 years ago, and we've been doing it for that long. And it's a safer biopsy. And it's a more extensive biopsy. And we published this in the medical literature. Uh, there are places in the world where it's o- that's only the thing they do. In England, our biopsy, which is called a 3D mapping biopsy, is the only biopsy they do in England now. In the United States, it's done at some major medical centers, but hasn't grown to be the uh, uh, what it should be. But it's getting there. It's getting there. Things are slow to change. That's the way medicine is. And if you're doing something new, expect the pushback. Expect for you to become a target. If you're not, then you're not doing something important. And you just take that as part of what's what's expected, part of the game. So what you're saying is that through this journey for you to get where you are, that there have been this these moments of fear and worry and anxiety And overall, if I'm going to change things, if I'm going to make them better, it will cause a new set of problems. I mean, it will create new things, maybe new time commitments. How did you not allow them to hold you back when you knew your purpose? You knew what you needed to do. You knew you were given a Ferrari in your head to get there. You knew it would take others to to meet you along the way. How did you not let the fear paralyze you? It's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I think that early on, I found that uh, there was a, a, a connection that I learned about uh, that your consciousness can get things from outside. I do t- transcendental meditation. I've been doing it for 40 years. You know, it's it's uh, what um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld has been doing for 40 years, and Tom Hanks has been doing for 40 years. And... It's a way of having your consciousness be more grounded. I, I did it before I went into medical school, and while it didn't take the fear away, because I was always afraid of being a bad doctor, uh, it, it allowed me to cope with it. That's the key. Everyone's going to have fear. You know, if you don't have fear, then you are not normal. Uh, but it's, am I going to cope with it? And I think those types of, of um, self Oh, uh, help aspects, uh, particularly something that can connect you to uh, improve your your consciousness. And, and those aspects are, are very helpful. That's a beautiful way of saying it. And we say on the show quite often that Newton said, if I've seen further, it is from standing on the shoulders of giants, that it is very easy for us, 
as our, our species, right? To put limitations. Oh, we, we can never cure. There will never be. Well, well, why? You're putting the limit on what you know today. Imagine one new, I'll call it the cosmic code. One new code hits you. One moment of the aha that makes you see things different than makes the next person to see things different. And so in life, we get these aha moments, right, Doc? That you know yep. you can do more. You know what has been expected of you, not necessarily expected of others. When did you know that you were called to do more on the topic of cancer? It's a good question. Uh, I think it was when I had that seminal first, uh, that first seminal idea. Uh, that was a time where I had to make a choice. I either had to go all in. Um, there was a fellowship available that was going to take me out of my training for a year to just do cancer work and, and, and really follow this idea with the help of the faculty of, of radiology at UCSF at the time. And, uh, I had to make that choice. And if I had taken the other choice, I would have just been in private practice and gone on and made lots of money, uh, but this was the choice, and, and somehow I knew that uh, this is what I was supposed to do. Uh, I was uh, uh, compelled to do it, and uh, because it was really a, a career-changing as well as a field-changing idea, this idea of ablating tumors with heat or cold or whatever. I mean, if you look in the literature now, you'll get 20,000 references on just that. And so it's had a, a huge effect, and, and I'm proud of that. Uh, I don't need the recognition, though. I found that out um, in another way, um, having been um, you know, put in a position where I had lost all the recognition, where I had basically had my whole career whacked, in a sense, and found myself going from the very top of academia and cancer treatment to basically reading chest x-rays in, a, in an imaging center. And I had to learn that um, this was not the, you know, what we're doing now is not really the important thing. Um, is the important thing is, is getting the work done, knowing that you did it, um, and, and having that as your foundation. Um, if you're running after fame, and money and all of those things, all of those things can be taken away from you, right? I mean, I mean, if if those are the things you're after and they're taken away, your happiness is still in somebody else's hands. And so uh, I learned that, and that has helped me do what I do now, which is, you know, push the envelope. So let's go talk, against let's, the standards. Let's talk about that. How did you find the fuel? Because most people, they get knocked down and they don't get back up. Most people don't. They actually walk through their lives as zombies. They don't get back up. You got back up even stronger. How did that happen? You know, I think that um, I started out, I, I'm an empiricist. I'm a, I'm a scientist. So if I can't feel it, touch it, measure it, then it doesn't exist. And therefore... A science and, and that thinking has separated us from, from a spiritual life, not necessarily a religious life, but a spiritual life, a thinking that, you know, there is something out there beyond us that maybe uh, is, is there and can help us if we can tap into it. Uh, and so uh, I 
through my experiences, um, found that I was able to change or, or at least uh, reconsider that, you know, I, I'm not an atheist. I may not be religious in the traditional sense, but uh, my experiences and the things I'm learning are telling me that there uh, can be more. And even as a scientist, that's the thing. Science and spirituality are coming together again through quantum physics and uh, experimentation that's being done around that. And so the framework uh, for understanding the spiritual is, is here now. It's very, very exciting time. I think we're going to be finding these things coming together, and that's going to help all of us. I think. I think that's a fascinating perspective, because to me, if I'm going to have somebody, I'm going to trust them with helping to extend my life. I want to know they think big, that they don't allow the limitations of today to stop progress, that they say, you, I got your back. I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to undercover rocks. I'm going to look in Tibet. I'm going to look in, in Miami. I'm going to look all around the world so that I'll give you all I have. Because I believe in life, all it takes is all you got. You have been designed to run at capacity because there are people that need you. So talk about that. I mean, heavy is the head that wears the crown, that you get to leave each day with your own form of trauma. I mean, every life you touch, every person you meet, that it creates its own ripple effect. So how have you been dealing with that? And advice that you can give to other providers around the world that are going to listen to this episode, advice you can give them? Well, if I could take what you just said in the beginning of your state and play it to every oncologist in the world, I would. Because that is the attitude that I believe oncologists should have when they're dealing with patients. There's a wonderful book called The Death of Cancer by Vincent DeVita. And he's one of the most famous oncologists in the history of oncology. And the first chapter in his book is his journey with one of his friends who's a prostate cancer patient, uncovering every rock, coming up against the medical establishment who says, no, no, you can't uncover that rock. And him going, we're going to uncover this rock. And he kept that man alive for 10 years when everyone said, that he should be dead in a much, much, much shorter time. So that's what we have to, and that's my, that's my job. And I learned from my patients. One of my patients um, has put me on to a, a treatment that's not available in the United States that um, has, has made a major change. We have to be willing to keep our open mind. And so I would say to a patient, get that guy who has an open mind and is willing to do all the things that you just said to do because uh, you need that person to be in the trenches with you and to help you and fight with you. And that means turning over all those rocks. You're right. That, that's, that's the way that I, I look at life is that if you're going to call someone your Sherpa, you better believe they've turned over those rocks because if you're going to get to the top of Everest, you need to trust your Sherpa. You need to trust the person that says, I'm telling you, I've looked at the path. I'm going to give you everything I have. You may not like where I tell you to put your foot, but my job is to get you there. And that's what you have done. You are creating for somebody an experience, an experience that will live on far beyond, beyond them. So, 
some words you have now to people around the world. What are, what are you working on right now that you are most proud of? I'll call it the, the crowning mo- moment of your life to say it all led up to this. What is that, Dr. G? It all led up to uh, when I discovered that I had metastatic prostate cancer that was incurable. And I could go the usual route, which was uh, castration, basically. Uh, I know the Unsullied are much admired from the Game of Thrones, but, uh, you know, uh, when they were told to uh, climb the wall, they took a nap because when you lose your you know, testosterone and you're castrated, that's what you do. It has tremendous psychological effects, tremendous physical effects, thinking, heart disease, I mean, all of those things. And that was the only thing open to me. Uh, but I also had a, a treatment that I had started on uh, about five years ago, six years ago now, on a, another uh, group of patients that had metastatic prostate cancer, and I got some truly miraculous results. People were going to hospice who are now free of disease. And so my my choice was to do my own procedure, to actually uh, figure out a way to have my own prostate cancer treatment that I felt was the only thing that could give me a chance to be disease-free without you know, being castrated. And so um, I got a friend, and I uh, basically showed him how to do certain things, and I knew that he could do the skills. And so while I was awake on the table, I guided him through the operation and uh, had, the, had my own breakthrough procedure uh, at that. And uh, we, we did a videos on it called AKA Dr. Hope. So if anybody wants to see that, they can, you know, look it up on the web. Um, you know, there are funny instances in it as well. I mean, you're playing Twister with medical instruments. And um, it's uh, I, everything that I had learned, everything I had experienced up until that moment was critical for me uh, to take that, you know, leap. And it was a leap of faith. I believed in what we were doing, and um, so we we uh, we did it. And you know, knock wood, I can tell you that uh, for two years now, I haven't had uh, any evidence for metastatic cancer, so I'm completely free of disease. And that's what we're working on and trying to. And that's what I'm proud of. Uh, to go back to the initial question, uh, you know, that's what we're working on to try and uh, bring to the world. It ain't easy. <laughs> It's not easy, but uh, we're dedicated to it. And how do we learn more about you? Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, there are things available on the web. If you look me up, you know, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see stuff. I think the, the best way of learning uh, about me in particular and how I feel about things and, and how I look upon the world is through those videos. Um, you know, because um, uh, it was at a time where uh, I had to reflect on everything. I had to reflect on on life, uh, what its meaning was. Did I want to go on if I couldn't live the life uh, the way I was living it? So there was a choice of life and death. I was actually choosing death if if what this 
what I was going to try experimentally didn't work. Uh, and so it has a, a lot of the seminal questions that I had in my mind in, put into that video. Beautifully put. Thank you again for sharing your story on the Life Stuff Podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you again, Dr. Gary, for sharing your story. And to the audience out there, what was your takeaway? Mine was a man who got to a place where he was tired of being sick and tired. Socrates said it best. The secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. Life's tough. You can be tougher. See you next time, everyone.